You've been listening to a podcast produced at 3CR Community Radio. It's Radiothon time. This is when we ask you, the listener, to help power community radio. This year, we need to raise $250,000 to keep the station going. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference. It's so easy to donate. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. We rely on the community's support. Donate to keep community-powered podcasts going for another year. Thanks for listening. Women on the Line, produced at 3CR, acknowledges the people of the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. We pay respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. Welcome back to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wurundjeri country. Also broadcast across the continent on the Community Radio Network. Sam Shahrazad Blue, and this show was ac- actually a bit of a collaboration between the rest of the Women on the Line team. Supriya Kunjan and Iris Lee helped put together this show. So in this show, we'll hear an interview with anti-war protester Margaret Pistorius, who attempted a citizen's arrest on former Defence Minister Christopher Pine. Afterwards, we'll hear excerpts from Dreaming Disability, an online event hosted by the Disability Justice Network and the Emerging Writers Festival. Firstly, to the interview that fellow Women on the Line presenter Priya conducted with Margaret Pistorius, who attempted the citizen's arrest of Mr Pine, now an arms industry lobbyist, at the Land Forces Weapons Expo on June 1st. Could you start by giving listeners a bit of background into the Land Forces Defence Expo and the importance of taking action against weapons manufacturers and war profiteers? Yeah, so the Defence Expo is one of three big Defence Expo. There's a Marine one, an Aeroplane one, or an Air Force one, and a Land one. And we thought it was an important moment to really take a stand against the defence industries where the government is pouring a huge amount of money in at the moment and it is growing rapidly. And we wanted to show Australians' displeasure. You know, Australians are very upset about the idea of being an exporter of weapons to countries that commit human rights abuses, such as Indonesia or Philippines, or even the USA, one of the biggest human rights abusers of them all. Mm. And also, you know, in terms of uh, defence contracting, as we see in the state of Victoria, for example, Elbit Systems has a partnership with the Victorian government, so it's a two-way street as well. Certainly, we actually think that the corporations are driving these partnerships rather than the government. The government are acting as sort of a bureaucracy or facilitator for, like, they're a bit like the, you know, administration service for the corporations, and the corporations are really the ones driving the agenda. They set the um, the blueprint, if you like, uh, of what needs to happen to roll out their industry in Australia, and they're taking the biggest cut of money from the public purse that we've seen for a very long time. Mm. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, in terms of resisting uh, that and and disrupting that, I understand uh, that as a part of Disrupt Land Forces, you attempted to conduct a citizen's arrest of a former defence minister, Christopher Pine, on the 1st of June. Um, So could you tell us maybe a little bit about uh, a bit about Disrupt Land Forces and uh, why you made the decision to take this action? I did. They've talked about me as a you know sugar glider because I jumped on mm-hmm. the um, bonnet of uh, Christopher Pine's Uber and um, in, in an attempt to stop him in his tracks and to uh, 
make a citizen's arrest because he, of course, is the architect of this whole uh, industry and the way this industry is being rolled out. And he's also the symbol of corporate capture because he's so classically been both defence minister, as you mentioned, and defence industries minister, mm. which means that he, before his defence ministers, he was the one setting up the industries. Um, and to some extent, it seems to be some sort of response to the decline of the, the car industry in South Australia uh, and their, their need to sort of replace the car industry. And so they've combined with unions, the Labor Party, um, you know, they're all in it together mm. to, to, to roll out this industry. And it's a sick industry. Uh, it's sick because of the amount of resources it uses. It's a sick industry because it's um, unnecessary and pointless at a moment in time when we need to be building ecosystems and solving the climate crisis. And it's a sick industry because a proportion of the product ends up uh, being used by governments against their own people, mm. such as the Indonesians against the West Papuans. Women on the line. In terms of the action focusing on uh, attempting a citizen's arrest of Christopher Pine, could you tell us a bit about your experience of engaging in that and the significance of conducting a citizen's arrest in anti-war protesting more generally? Yeah, well, a citizen's arrest, of course, has a long and honourable tradition in anti-war protesting. Often we've attempted citizen's arrests of the head of of, um, nuclear companies or arms or uh, U.S. military bases or, um, you know, or, or war criminals. People have been identified as war criminals. So um, it's, it's a tactic that can be used, and the idea is that citizen sort of approaches um, uh, the person who's got these concerning sort of features and they, they attempt to arrest them. But Christopher Pine, you know, uh, of course, was a, a prime target. He was standing outside the um, convention centre on that first day and somebody pointed him out to me and I just had to move across and, and take action because he's such a sort of odious figure in the industry and um, amongst people who are watching this rollout because he is now uh, following his his position on the defence industry um, as a minister, defence industry minister, he is now on the advisory boards of several uh, defence uh, industries companies, mm. military industry companies, um, as a consultant. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was... Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> And when you see investments in the military industrial complex, in uh, the expansion of prisons that become their own sort of self-perpetuating industries in these communities that then, you know, rely on them for jobs or, you know, it's it's, pre- it's presented as an inevitability um, and, you know, a need to, to continue investing in those systems. Yeah, yeah. This sort of security culture, the prison culture, you know, um, these are sort of at the forefront of colonization, right? You know, that's how they maintain colonization because people would stand up against them if we didn't have these sort of extreme forms of um, violence sort of at the edge of the colonising process. So we, we in, in disrupting land forces, we called on the voices of, of women, you know, and the toxic masculinities um, uh, that we see emanating from the military system that has a bearing on suicide and domestic violence and the families of women and, um, you know, of ordinary people. And then we called on the refugee movement, you know, where refugees are escaping. Um, they're 
escaping this, uh, these terrible um, military situations. We called on the, you know, the security and the prison system. We, we called on climate activists who are going to be the brunt of these as they take action in the future and um, get repressed for their action for just the most just of causes. Um, and and we called on those who have stand in solidarity with First Nations people. You know, we had um, Uncle George and Irene singing from West Papua. We had our friends, our West Papuan our friends in West Papua, lighting fires in solidarity with us and our action in West Papua. We had a sort of a, a, a smoke signal um, action. We swapped smoke signals and um, you know we really looked at the sort of how militarism cuts across all these issues because it's the mechanism of repression and it's the mechanisms of surveillance and sort of harsh colonization. That was a conversation with Margie Pistorius, an anti-war activist with Wage Peace, which is an anti-militarism organization that works to disrupt war and end war culture. You can find out more information about the work of Wage Peace by going to their website, wagepeaceau.org, or you can also head to their Facebook page by looking up Wage Peace. You can also find out more information about Disrupt Land Forces by looking up Disrupt Land Forces on Instagram, where you can have a look back at the actions of resistance during the Land Forces Expo. Across these stolen lands now called Australia, you have been listening to Women on the Line, highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices broadcast on the Community Radio Network. Now we'll bring you excerpts from Dreaming Disability, an online event hosted by the Disability Justice Network and the Emerging Writers Festival. It was broadcast online on June 17th and centres around visions of a future beyond eugenics, pandemics, climate disasters, ableism and racial and colonial violence that uniquely impact disabled peoples. We'll hear words, poems and thoughts from disabled creators and writers, Van Marley Hermans, Julia Roseback, and Margot B. Von Collins. The other writers in the event were Tori Hobbs, Eleanor McDonald, and Muhib Nabulsi. So we'll start off by hearing from Van Marley Hermans. Tonight we're coming together to dream and imagine a world rooted in disability justice. And I think that this is a very special event for all of the disabled writers and also our disabled audience tonight because at writers' festivals and in the literary scene, disability is still very much rooted in a deficit discourse and there's not much space for disabled joy um, and there's not much space to kind of move beyond the violence that we regularly experience and to actually imagine the world and the ways of caring for each other that we want. And so that is what um, has kind of spurred the creation of tonight's event. The five disabled writers that you'll be hearing from are all members of a newly formed disability justice network. Um, It's a group led by and for multiply marginalised disabled people across so-called Australia. And in the spirit of love and justice, the disability justice network has come together to share space, organise, provide mutual aid, um, and essentially care for each other. But yeah, anyway, before we begin, I also will be doing a reading tonight. Um, It was going to be like a really cool kind of mix that I'm working on with um, a UN DJ called Emily Fishpool, but unfortunately I wasn't ready in time. So I'm just going to give you a preview 
and a reading of the poem before we head on to the rest of our wonderful readers tonight. So this is a poem I wrote um, about, yeah, my visions of disability justice, and it's called Beyond Sleep. Dreaming extends beyond sleep. It is a practice that I keep building on while I am awake. It is not hope. I do not wait for hope. It is imaginary turned material, turned mutual aid and action, pushing the limits of what we tell ourselves is possible, a way of caring for and relating to each other, grounded in both past and future. Like Audrey, my visions of a future I can create have been honed by the lessons of my limitations, have been honed by generations of my disabled kin and the violence that has been inflicted upon our bodies. My visions have been shaped by a view beneath the veil, illuminating the connections between ableism and racism, an understanding of power and white supremacy and whose body is worth more than others. What my waking dreams tell me is that amidst the violence, there is liberation to be found, a world where the prison walls are burned down, group homes and psych wards burned down, a world where hospitals are transformed and networks of care and solidarity are born in the spirit of abolition and justice for the communities that have birthed us. In this life, I accept I may be driven by anger, an unruly partner I must learn to live with, whose touch has changed heart and skin and bone, an emotion become embodied as inflammation grows. Inflammation is the body's process of fighting against things that harm in order to heal. So I ask that within this struggle, let me feel only anger and grief that is grounded in love. Although they may dehumanize us, my disabled brothers and sisters, we are neither disposable nor defective. Our deaths are not destined. Our humanness extends beyond their imagination. Beyond the confines of wellness or productivity, we are beloved, kindred and needed. And in dreams that extend beyond sleep, may we find freedom. Without any more from me, I'm going to pass on to our first speaker for the night, who is Julia. Julia Roseback is a Sikh, queer, Maori, Polish writer, survivor, and abolitionist, born and raised in Borlu, so-called Perth, and based in Nam, so-called Melbourne. Their work discusses care work, collectivism, abolition, and living with complex chronic illnesses. Thank you so much, Marley. For a long time, I associated disability with the language of loss. Loss from Old English loss, L-O-S, meaning ruin, destruction. And the Proto-Germanic lausa, L-A-U-S-A, to loosen, divide, cut apart. Loss implies there was something had that one couldn't keep. With disability, we lose movement, function, mobility, in madness, we lose our minds. When asked to proceed, we're at a loss. In 2002, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease and a mood, uh, a mood disorder. Here began my ruin, destruction, loosening or dividing of parts. Without realising, I began the lifelong process of severance. I took note of the good parts and the bad. The good parts were those that were still salvageable those that could accommodate for or reconcile those that were bad. The bad parts harboured my sickness where something was somehow lost in my making. Over time, I created what Mia Mingus once called an able-bodied washed version of myself, a me that could hide the bad parts for undetermined periods of time, 
This is what I adorned as best I could when engaging with others. I wore this able-bodied costume knowing that doing so allowed me easier access to love that was rich in hope, dreams and aspirations. It's amazing how different hope looks when divided between disabled and non-disabled children. In non-disabled children, we hope for success, prosperity, adoration, wealth, love. In disabled children, we hope that one day they will be disabled no longer. I spent many years wondering what about me welcomed sickness as a child. With both autoimmune diseases and mood disorders, there is no established cause. Current theories include environmental factors such as toxins or chemicals, diets or infections. Interestingly, medicine suggests both autoimmune diseases and mood disorders can be caused or exacerbated by stress, which is to say how the body responds to trauma, and by genetics, which is to say the blood and bones of my ancestors. I wonder then how Western medicine considers the impact of colonization, war, genocide and displacement on how disability is created. Perhaps what Western medicine often ignores is how the interplay of stress and genetics speaks to historical intergenerational trauma, how settler colonialism continues to impact not only who becomes disabled, but additionally our access to health and healing. I use Western medical terms for consistency, but I'm hesitant that Western terminology can honour the many constituents of my mind, body and soul. To quote Johanna Hedva, I am antagonistic to the notion that the Western medical insurance industrial complex understands me in my entirety. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps my disability can be traced back some 200 years to European settlers colonising Aotearoa, kidnapping and impoverishing Tangata Venua, exposing my ancestors to European illness and disease, introducing a high-fat, high-sugar Western diet and depriving them of their land, waters and access to traditional healing practices. Or perhaps my disability can be traced to the displacement of my great-grandparents after Nazi Germany invaded Poland, how the inhumane conditions during his time as a prisoner of war caused irreparable damage to my great-grandfather's heart and lungs. To refer back to the language of Western medicine, traumatic events can leave a chemical mark on a person's genes, which can then be passed down to the next generation. To what extent was my disability inherited, a product of the anxiety, the fear, the grief and the anger that came before me? Here is where I arrive at disability justice. Disability justice considers how settler colonialism creates and exacerbates disability, how the dispossession and decimation of land and culture innately affects access to healing. Disability justice considers how the conditions created by colonialism and capitalism are inherently disabling, how a history of colonialism and capitalism have disproportionately disabled Indigenous peoples worldwide, how disabled people living under these conditions are continually subjugated, imprisoned, institutionalised or killed. To quote Patty Byrne, disability justice honours the long-standing legacies 
of resilience and resistance, which are the inheritance of all of us whose bodies or minds will not conform. When I dream of disability justice, I'm dreaming for my ancestors. I'm dreaming for generations of loved ones who have been displaced, institutionalized, criminalized and incarcerated due to their disability, sickness or madness. I'm dreaming for the black and indigenous disabled people, the disabled people of color, the disabled sex workers, the fat disabled people, the criminalized disabled people, the poor disabled people, the currently or formerly incarcerated disabled people, the queer and trans disabled people, the disabled drug users, any and all disabled people whose disability intersects with any other oppression they may face. I dream for all disabled people who aren't considered in their entirety. I dream for all disabled people who aren't considered whole. And with this, I dream for my child self, how she divided herself, separating the good parts and bad, learning to hide the bad parts in order to perform able-bodiedness and performing able-bodiedness in order to be loved. For her, I am piecing myself together again. For her, for my ancestors, for my children and my great-grandchildren, for all disabled people who have been and will be in all our complexity, our perfection and imperfection, our histories and multiplicities, our endless possibilities. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Julia. That was beautiful. I have some tears. Our next speaker is Margot Bevan-Collin. Margot is a history and political economy student at the University of Sydney, where she has served as an elected disability officer since 2020 and helped run the Disability Collective. She is a current member of Women with Disability Australia's Youth Advisor Group and has worked as the treasurer of the Disabled and Neurodiverse Workers Alliance. She is a non-fiction writer with a strong focus on disability and labour history in Australia since the 1970s. Welcome, Margot. Thank you, Ali, and um, thank you to, to Julia. That was absolutely gorgeous. So uh, my name is, is Margot. I am a 27-year-old uh, trans woman, not unlike my body. My desk at home is not particularly well put together. The tabletop is a mess of half-empty riddle and blister packs, cryptic crossword books, and the six or seven monographs I happen to be referencing at the time. Everything constantly changes rearranges, collapsing and confused. There are, however, three constants. Below the right of my computer screen sits a portrait of Rosa Luxemburg. Next to it is a vase of roses and wheat. And above it all, on the wall, is a poster of Vladimir Lenin. Many people have come into my house and, understandably, taken them to be some kind of vaguely sinister, ritualistic communist shrine. The truth as is usually the case, is far more benign. I was monstrously depressed from a frighteningly young age. A sheltered upbringing in a country town had its advantages for sure, but it also left me with no language for the complex feelings I was having about my gender, little community to share the fears, myriad disability diagnoses brought forth, and above all, a sense of dread that all that could be done had been done. The first time I remember feeling genuine hope for the future was when, at 20 years old, I finally sat down and read, read Lenin's What Is To Be Done. 
Up until this point, I'd studied the Russian Revolution at school, I'd read the Communist Manifesto with the zeal and drive of a 10-year-old reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy purely so they could tell their friends that they had done it. And subsequently, I called myself a Marxist for half a decade without really understanding what it meant. I thought the hammer and sickle looked cool. If we should take one thing from Lenin, divisive character as he is, it should be the title of his pamphlet. What is to be done? It's the question at the heart of Bread and Roses, a symbol of struggle for over a century and the inspiration for my one visible tattoo. Material necessity, bread and resplendent beauty, roses. What is to be done and what is waiting for us when we win? What is to be done is the question I ask myself every day and the question all people who want a better world need to ask themselves as well. And it's the question at the heart of real disability justice. Unfortunately, it's a question neither I nor anyone else to my knowledge has a satisfactory answer to yet. When we do have an answer, it will have come from practice and experimentation on the ground, within and outside of our community. That is the task history has given to us, to make something new, something real, something with texture that we can see and feel and enjoy. My partner loves sunrises. And slowly, I've come to appreciate them as well. Their beauty isn't just contained to the brilliance of the shining edge of the world. My joy, personally, comes from watching the light creeping slowly across the landscape in front of me. Sit high enough and you can watch the entire world before you wake up and the tendrils of the sun's ray slowly inch forward. Disability justice isn't just the sun's horizon. It's the map that traces every ray of light reaching out to us from the world's edge. Unfortunately, our sun is stationary. That's gross. If we're, if we're going to see that sunrise, there's nothing to be done but get up as best as we're able to. We're disabled. And however we can move to meet it. The third constant on my desk I haven't yet mentioned, the Rosa Luxemburg portrait is perhaps my most treasured possession. She was among many other things, a Polish disabled woman with a magnitude of love of life and of all people around her that would defy the entire hour, let alone my allotted time. And that was Margot B. Von Collins, who spoke at Dreaming Disability, an online event hosted by the Disability Justice Network and the Emerging Writers Festival. And that's all we have time for today. We'd love to hear your comments or thoughts about the program. So please send an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or give us a call at 3CR on 03 8377. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara, and you can download our programs at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. You can also listen back on your podcast app. I'm Sherazar Blue, and thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more Women on the Line content. Did you enjoy listening to this podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are part of that community. Right now, it's our Radiothon, and we need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Help support community-powered podcasts for another year.